This is Americana Podcast, the 51st state. One of the running jokes about Americana music is it's classically defined as sad singer-songwriters with acoustic guitars. Some would argue that Americana is just another step in the evolution of the folk rock movement, which began in the mid-1960s, that audiences have known sad acoustic music since the birds covered Mr. Tambourine Man and Bob Dylan took the stage. What do we really gain as listeners, musicians, and working industry professionals by adding another genre title to an already complex musical history with an arguably simple premise. Not to get tangled up in blue, but Americana as an identity brings an opportunity that many genres arguably lack due to micro divisions and industry mismanagement. It's not just singer-songwriters with acoustic guitars. It's the embrace of an idea that lyrics in particular and music still mean something and can still bring people together. Perhaps it's time we stop associating Americana with the word acoustic and more with the word community. Fortunately, there are artists who already are ahead of the curve on that front. Drew Holcomb, originally from Memphis and currently residing in Nashville, Tennessee, formed his band Drew Holcomb the Neighbors in 2006 and was an early adopter of the term Americana. Holcomb's discography is impressive. It extends as far back as 2005 and has a nearly consistent output of a two-year album cycle. His most recent record, Dragons, was released in August of 2019. Holcomb's musical identity, although based in songwriting, is far from the classic acoustic singer-songwriter. His adoption of big percussion-led sound, rich production value, and the embrace of his larger-than-life warm voice make his records feel more like a happy celebration in the summertime and less like an over-contemplative listening room. Most of his songs touch on the ideas of family and community and serve as a reminder that those aspects of life are just as rich of an experience as any heartbreak that we can relate to in a song. There's a sincere enthusiasm that Holcomb brings to the table and it's one he's willing to share. Drew Holcomb and the neighbors have also presented the Moon River Festival in Chattanooga, Tennessee, an annual Americana-centric festival, which recently announced its 2020 lineup including artists such as Billy Strings, Yola, Natalie Hemby, and our host, Robert Earl Keane. You can find the festival's link in the description or on our website at americanapodcast.com. So join us from our live recording at Railbird Music Festival, where our host, Robert Earl Keane, speaks with Drew Holcomb about his latest record, Dragons, The Memphis Effect, and songwriting with conscious sound. I'm your producer, Clara Rose, and this is Americana Podcast. The 51st state. Don't shower me with flattery. I ain't got no time for pleasantries. Give me the truth and set me free. Hey, it's the end of the world now. Haven't you heard? So smoke them if you got them. Boys and girls, say goodbye to the past now. Raise up your glass and revel. Last.
welcome to Americana Podcast, the 51st State. We're recording live from the inaugural launch of the Railbird Festival in Keeneland, Kentucky. I'm your host, Robert O'Keen. Today, we're going to visit with singer-songwriter Drew Holcomb. We're sure glad to see you here, Drew. Thanks for having me. Glad uh, to be here. Uh, you're from Memphis, correct? That's right. All right. Uh, I'm sure you've been asked about Beale Street and Rendezvous Ribs, but I want to ask you about something very important. Have you ever shopped at Lansky's, the menswear store to the king? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've been down there a bunch as a, as a kid, but when I was younger, the, the, the shirts weren't really my thing. But, uh, but it's, a, it's a very famous store, and it's a, it's a fun place. And I think he was still living when I went as a, as a kid. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I would have liked to met met him. I, I I go in there. I don't know why. I mean, I like clothes. I'm a clothes horse. So I, hey, you look sharp. I love to I love to go in there. I, I, one time I talked to this lady. and She said, "You should wear that white shirt. That white shirt looks really good on you." And I said, "No, I like the black shirt." And she says, "No, the white shirt looks best." I said, "You know the thing with Elvis about white and black?" And she goes, "No." I said, "Look, when he was wearing black." He was cool, and everybody loved him. And when he went to white, he got fat, and then he died. <laughs> yeah, so, so I like to so go. So you shut with, her up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I bought the black shirt. Yeah, I bought the black All shirt. All right. Uh, you have an impressive history of record making. Looks like you've been releasing a record almost every two years since 2005. Right here in 2019, there's a, yet another new one. Uh, how do you write songs, make records, tour, make time for your family, and stay so consistent? Uh, I don't know. I'll let you know when I figure it all out. But, uh, I, I, it's just kind of the two-year thing has never been like an, an intentional thing. It's just kind of been my cycle. I, I write a bunch of songs over the course of six to eight months and then record them with my band. And, you know, it takes four or five months to kind of get it all ready and book a tour. And then we release a record and go out and tour. And, you know, in the meantime, play a lot of shows, festivals, uh, you know, opening for other people, do a lot of things in the meantime. Uh, but it's just kind of, that's kind of just been our cycle. And now that we've got, like you said, I've got married with three kids. Uh, even the way we tour, we, we tour like Wednesday to Saturday, and then we go home Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, so that there's a rhythm of, of being around. So I've, I've kind of, we've just kind of created certain ways of doing things that work for us. And most of the guys in the band um, are also married, and some of them have kids. And so... We love making music, and we've decided it's our life, and so we've got to kind of create ways to, to make it work. A gorgeous vagabond, she was sweet, but she was strong. She was an American beauty. She was deja vu, she was a catch-22. How do you describe your music to someone who's never heard it? Well, that, that's one of the sort of great things about, you know, the, the Americana umbrella is that before that, people would say, what do you, what do you, what kind of music do you make? And I'd say, I don't know. It's like singer-songwriter kind of folk rock. I don't, I don't know how, you know. And, and now it's like, oh, we're, we're Americana. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just like a great catch-all for people that write and play their own music, you know. I like that definitive answer there. Yeah. That, that, that works for me. If you'll indulge me, I'd like to jump right in and talk about your newest record, Dragons. Yeah. I hear a very personal, albeit feel-good record. Is that fair? Yeah, it's, it's very personal. There's a song about my son. There's a song about... Uh, the death of my brother when I was a kid. There's a song about my, my wife. There's a song about my grandfather. It's a very, uh, 
Yeah, it's definitely a, sort of a personal narrative record, more that more so than the, the last few. Was that the concept from the beginning? No, it wasn't. I just started writing songs, and um, the second song I wrote was a song called "See the World," which is a song about my my son. It was one night I was just kind of watching him. I just read him a book, put him to sleep, and you know, it was just kind of enjoying the gratitude of of the moment. It was one of those nights, you know, just where you kind of everything's everything's good, and you go to kind of going to going to bed full. And I wrote that song out of that moment, kind of thinking about him growing up and stuff. And so that sort of set the tone a little bit. And the other, the other song I wrote first was a song called Family. And it's this sort of uh, front porch, stomp, clap. Fun, fun song. Really fun song. Yeah. yeah. And so when you, when you kind of, for me at least, when I know I've written two or three that I really love that I want to release, that those sort of set the pace for the rest of the record. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I worked a lot harder on this record than I ever have before. I usually write, like I said, you know, a bunch of songs in like five to six months and then record them and release them. I don't write during that whole rest of that process. And this time I wrote for probably 18 months, two or three songs a week. Mm -hmm. And a lot, did co-writing for the first time, which I've, I never really have done much of that except for with the band. And just really kind of worked harder. And, and that I think that narrowed the, the focus because there was so much more to choose from. I was really able to sort of find a, sort of songs that, work together thematically and sonically. Tell me about the title track, Dragons. Yeah, so Dragons is a song uh, I wrote with a good friend of mine, Zach Williams, who's the lead singer of a band called The Lone Bellow. Mm -hmm. uh, great band. Um, they were oh, from, so you had The Lone Bellow on, on, on yeah, this particular sing, track. Yeah, and they sing they, Are they as like, spirited in the studio as they are on stage? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a hoot. Yeah. They, they, they're so good. Their harmonies are unbelievable. Yeah. It was like, it's kind of like, you know, watching fire. Right in the studio. So he and I got together and we were talking about uh, our grandfathers and this sort of, they're both my, my grandfather that the song's about is, is, is dead and gone. He's been gone for 15 years and his um, still living, but actually passed away in the, in the months after the, after the song. And so just talking about these larger than life people uh, who really gave us wings mm -hmm. to do what we do. And this is kind of a, what would they say to us now? It's kind of, it's just his dream about a campfire and, this is, uh, you know, slay all the dragons that stand in your way is sort of the, 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 the hook at the end of the chorus. And I uh, played it for the first time last Christmas at a show we do in, in Nashville at the Symphony Center. And it's the first time in my career I've had a standing ovation mid-song. Wow. And I thought, okay. Fantastic. Maybe we're on to something here. He faded into the forest, proudly singing this hymn. Take a few chances, a few worthy romances Go swimming in the ocean on New Year's Day Don't listen to the critics, stand up and bear witness Go slay all the dragons that stand in your way uh, Regardless of one's intentions, record-making takes on a life of its own. Um, uh, my, my example was I made a, made a record one time the first day. It was 80 degrees and beautiful, and it was a little bitty studio. But, you know, you could hang outside and sit at the porch and stuff. The next day it was 10 degrees, and it stayed like that for about a week. And the record just got worse and worse, you know. <laughs> it became harder and harder. But so uh, my question is, uh, was uh, Dragons a difficult or easy experience? Uh, it was actually a pretty, um, I don't know if easy is the right word, but it was a very satisfying experience. We we left town and went to Asheville, North Carolina, 
to the studio called Echo Mountain, which I had seen in a David Brothers documentary piece and really loved the look of the space and wanted to get out of town kind of so we could sort of camp out and work all night and you know kind of go 24 7 and we had some pre-production we had worked on kind of knew some the framework of what we wanted to do but kind of left a lot of it open-ended and we would track you know three or four songs a day and do the vocals and everything as much as we could live and while we were there. Um, it was one of those things where, because we were there and all together, we were able to sort of work on the fly. There was a song that made it on the record called You Want What You Can't Have, which was sort of on the bubble. It was like, well, we'll record it if we have time, you know, and then we ended up having two or three hours at the end of the last day where we were we kind of wrapped everything else we wanted to record. And we said, let's just go give it a shot. And I, it was this real kind of quiet, contemplative song when I wrote it. And the band was like, what if we kind of ramp it up and, you know, turned it into this totally different other thing. And that's the magic of the studio for me is sort of those moments. But uh, it was a really satisfying experience. I mean, we, were, we worked our butts off. We were there, you know, 20, you know, 18, 20 hour days for four or five days and then went home and sort of, you know, you get this huge pile of recordings, then you go, let the producer go kind of dig through it and find the best stuff. And, and then we had some people that came in and collaborated after the fact, like, the, like Lone Bellow and stuff. The song, The Way You Make Me Feel, rolls out in a very natural way. Can you tell us about that song? Yeah, we, uh, that's a song about my wife. Uh, it's this sort of, the whole idea is, you know, I might forget all these things, all these memories, but I'll never forget the way you make me feel. And so it kind of came out of actually a sort of a heavy place. My wife lost all four of her grandparents to some sort of dementia or Alzheimer's. And... In, in that process, um, they almost all forgot everybody in their life except for their spouse, which was a really sweet thing, you know, because they still had that connection, even when they didn't were so disoriented. And so I was thinking about that with with, with us, and hopefully that won't be our, our story, obviously. But uh, it was a this song. I just wanted it was it was really it's a sweet song, you know. There's there's nothing ironic about it. It's a very like tender uh, word to her, you know. Um, and so I wanted it to have this very natural kind of bounce to it. So it's just the whole beginning is just drums and upright and the upright's right in your face recording wise. I just wanted you to feel every thing that happened is happening on the strings and sing into that because I always I always have the bass really loud in my ears, my monitor, because that's where my voice sort of sits. Mm -hmm. So to just have those two things kind of working together like that, and then obviously other things come in, piano and pedal steel and stuff, but uh yeah, it was it was um, it was sort of a Tom Waits moment for me in the studio. I was like really referencing him a lot and mm -hmm. wanted it to feel sort of like me as an old man, which I've always been sort of an old soul. My mom used to say, and so my voice sort of lends itself into that. And um, that song was a really that was a pretty easy one to record because mm -hmm. I had a very clear vision of what I wanted it to sound like. The band nailed it. Mm -hmm. I was able to really kind of live in the in the framework they created and sing the vocal and let it roll off the tongue and uh, it's really really that was a fun one I might forget nights swimming at your apartment after midnight I'd forget our trip to Charleston walking barefoot in the moonlight I'd forget holding you close in the late December chill but I'll never forget the way you made me I'll never forget the way you make me feel Singing next to me at a high-tone cafe Hoping for a companion to go 
don't make some mistakes with dancing it and his wedding two starry-eyed kids hoping maybe someday we will grow old like this uh, you mentioned the way up front upright bass what sounds would you think are essential to your music yeah uh, mm -hmm. I think a lot uh, as a songwriter in rhythm, like I, I think about things as how the drums are gonna feel. So I don't play the drums, um, but I know exactly what I want them to feel like. And I think our records have this sort of, they're, they're Americana singer-songwriter records, but they also are very sort of groove-centric. You know, uh, and that's, I think that's some of the Memphis coming out in, in me and my, in my love of, uh, of R&B music and stuff. So there's, I think an essential part of the music is definitely sort of the, the you know the feel. I wanted to feel. I wanted a song to have a certain sort of rhythmic feel to it. Uh, and then, um, other than that, we, we don't play a lot by a lot of rules, except for everything's got to you know be performed by us. Mm -hmm. You know, so we don't we don't we don't do a lot of like studio cheating, which you know it's not cheating I guess, but it's we're a little bit purist and that we want to sit in the room and be able to record it. And we start a tour rehearsal. It's like every song we do has to be able to we have to be able to nail it. Just the five of us even though the recording might have 20 things going on. And so figuring out who's going to cover certain parts with different instruments is, is one of the uh, things that I really like about touring because you can kind of, you, know, you make a record to make the best record you can. You don't want to think about how it's going to translate live while you're making the record because that's its own creative piece. But then you've got to somehow learn to translate that over here. And that's a, that's a, that's a, it's tricky, you know, but it's, but it's fun. It's a good challenge. How can I stop you in your tribe? Trains moving way too fast. Slow down, baby, I can't keep up, but I keep coming back. You gotta fight for love. Fight for what you're dreaming of. You gotta fight. So Washington Blue, uh, 2005, correct? <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you mind, if I, I'm going to back. back up a yeah, little bit. Yeah, I love it. Uh, Washington Blue, 2005. Uh, um, you're, you consider that your first record? Yeah. I saw something about there was an EP in 2003, but that yeah, was... Yeah, we, we'd like that one to disappear from the okay, face of the earth. Okay, there you go. I understand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, the Washington Blue, um, your first record, uh, wh what prompted you to... Decide to make that record. To make a record? Yeah. I, uh, when I was in college in Knoxville at UT, I took a semester abroad and lived in... Go Vols. Yeah, thank you. Thank okay, you. Thank you. My man. <laughs> We're in enemy territory here in Lexington, though. we got to be careful. <laughs> so I lived in, in Edinburgh, Scotland for six months, and that's really where I started writing songs. I came back to Knoxville and started booking some gigs and playing, playing shows, and... My friends were all at first like kind of making fun of, oh, you're gonna be, you're gonna be a songwriter guy now, you know, and then they came to the show and they're like, oh, these are pretty good. Uh -huh. You should maybe you should maybe think about doing this. Uh -huh. So I started playing a whole lot more, and this producer in Memphis uh, who had been as a kid, I grew up. I was a, uh, my grandfather was really big into duck hunting, so I grew up duck hunting, and I met this producer guy through duck hunting, and um, he heard that I'd been writing songs, and he's like. He's kind of country guy. And he's like, so I mean, I heard this. Uh, my duck hunting buddy's writing some songs, huh? 
I'm like, yeah, that's right. He goes, why don't you come, come work for me in the studio? And uh, we'll, we'll record some of them on the weekends, you know. And so I went and worked for him, and he was working on it. He's kind of a modern rock producer. He was working with, like, Three Doors Down and Saliva and all these bands that I didn't really... I love those guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I didn't... I didn't <laughs> <laughs> they're good guys. I actually yeah. got to know a bunch of them. They're good guys. That's not my, my musical style. But So I started recording with his engineer, and next thing you know, it's like, well, let's make a whole record. And that was Washington Blue. It was made with his engineer kind of on borrowed studio time. Mm-hmm. I need to feel your freedom. Come on, darling, say you will go. North through the lights to watch the snow fall. East to the city, we can see it all. South to the ocean, west to the mountains. I have a question here. <laughs> yes. No. Uh, okay. So, from Washington Blue, what what experience did you take away from that and that you keep today? Um, for instance, you've yeah. learned something in that studio, and that you use that all the time. Yeah, I learned two things that are sort of this beautiful um, sort of opposites thing in the studios. That one, it requires a ton of humility and teachability to be a good recording artist. Mm-hmm. You don't know very much, and you got to learn a lot. On the other hand, you have to have a lot of confidence. Mm-hmm. So it's really <laughs> kind of it's, opposed to a each other. S- yeah. Serious tension in that. Yeah, right. And so I've carried that tension with me, I think, every time I've made a record, which is I need to learn something new. I need to learn how to sing better. I need to learn how to play better. I need to let the people in the room who have great ideas, let them have runway to work those ideas out, but then also have the confidence as the artist to say, no, this is what I want. This is how I want it to feel. I remember one time, Two weeks before we made the record, Good Light, our long-term, long-time drummer um, quit the band, decided to go separate way. So we're like about to make this record. We've booked time at Arden in Memphis, this historic studio. And he, uh, like, we had to hire a studio guy for the first time ever to, to fill in. And this guy came in, and he was amazing. He played great on the record, but this one song called Can't Take It With You, and he had this really cool kind of groovy idea. And I was like, nah, I just want it straight. You know, I want it real, like, leave on helm, straight. And he's like, ah, I totally disagree. And I was like, I hear you. I respect you on that. But this is how I want it. Mm-hmm. And I was, on that particular one, I was right to trust my instinct. And mm-hmm. so letting people have runway to run with their ideas, but then sort of at the end of the day sort of saying, well, this is this is my thing. I've got to make the final choice, me and the producer. And so that all started with Washington Blue and carried it with me. And I, I feel like we've just, every time we've gotten better at it and better at it and more confident. So you mentioned good light. Um, can I ask you about a question? Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, do you remember writing What Would I Do Without You? You know, I don't remember the exact, like, location and time and space when I wrote it. Uh, I do remember the feeling. It was, um, you know, I talked earlier about that, never, but I'll never forget the way you make me feel was sort of this really feel-good moment. What Would I Do Without You was actually written in a really dark moment for me where I felt like life was sort of crumbling around me that, you know, the the... I tend to carry a lot of like the way to the world is like sort of, you know, with the news and things that are going on in the world as I just can sometimes get really, can go pretty dark. And I was having sort of one of those 
weeks and, and nights. And, and then my wife, Ellie, was sort of the, the anchor, kind of keeping me from, you know, keeping me out of the storm or whatever, keeping me anchored in the storm. And so that song was written sort of as a desperate thank you mm-hmm. in the midst of feeling like, you know, there's this, you know, the whole first line of the song. Sometimes I wake up with the sadness. Other times it feels like madness. Mm-hmm. What would I do without you? Kind of like, man, if I was left alone in this madness, it wouldn't be good. Mm-hmm. So thanks for sticking with me. Sometimes I wake up with the sadness. Other days it feels like madness. So what would I do without you? When colors turn to shades of gray With the weight of the world at the end of the day What would I do without you? A decade goes by without a warning And there's still a kindness in your eyes Amidst the questions and the worry A peace of mind always takes me by surprise The legendary songwriter Billy Joe Shaver uh, used to go to movies to clear his head. Do you have a zen-like experience or a place you go to clear your head? Yeah, mine's not nearly as cool as that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's I like to walk and play golf. Uh-huh. And just be by myself or with yeah. a friend and leave my cell phone in the car and talk about life or whatever. Um, I still like to listen to a lot of music, even though that's part of my life. I, just, um, I don't really listen to myself a lot, which is when I, a friend of yours that I met one time, Guy Clark, I met him at this get-together in Nashville. And I said, uh, Guy, when you were my age, who'd you listen to? And he's hand-rolling a, <laughs> hand, hand a cigarette. Takes a deep breath, blows out smoke, and goes, "Me." <laughs> <laughs> Sounds so much like Guy. I feel like he's here. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite place to write? I love writing in my kitchen. Uh huh. Yeah, this is just all the all ah, the, the classic, the kitchen table. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic. that's the place for me. Our kitchen sort of has big ceilings and it's loud and. I can hear myself all around the room, yeah. you know, and so that's the place I like to write. I have like a little writing room office. And I hardly ever write in there. It's too much stuff, too much distraction, you know. Uh, but yeah, I like to write in the kitchen, and then I like to write in the car, mm-hmm. like driving around with the voice memo on, just right. singing nonsense and seeing what what you can come up with. Hmm. What about you? Uh, I have a place that I like to write. It's called the Scriptorium. And um, then also, I've written a few songs in the car. But in the car, if I write a song, I have to, I have to like use someone else's melody. Right. And then, you know, then if it's really good at all, then I go home and change it up with yeah. the, mus- the music. But most of the time, it's like you say, uh, let's see, my last one in the car was called Alpine Really Needs a Bypass, which is a, which is a town... <laughs> Which is a town. While you're sitting in traffic. Town in, it's the town in Texas. <laughs> no one seems to recognize your face. Forever changing as you plead your case. It's okay to love yourself sometimes. 
We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with Drew Holcomb shortly. At Americana Podcast, it is our goal to define and expand on the genre of Americana music. With assistance from our Sultan and Seer of Songwriting, Will Vote, this is Will's Pick. Hardwood Floors by Charles Wesley Godwin from the record Seneca. Charles Wesley Godwin is a singer-songwriter from Morgantown, West Virginia. The son of a coal miner, he grew up in the country hunting and fishing and playing football. When his football dreams at West Virginia University ended, he picked up a guitar and soon found a passion and an aptitude for music and songwriting. On his debut record, Seneca, Godwin captures the beauty as well as the bleak reality of his part of the country, which is just beginning to be represented musically on a wider stage. The lyrics of the songs on Seneca are filled with stories of hardworking people making their way in the modern world. Like the best of Americana music, these songs are original, insightful, and devoid of the cliches that are too often found in popular music. Godwin's soaring, distinctive voice gives life and power to the words of the songs, which he calls an autobiography of an Appalachian boy. Seneca has several songs that caught our ear, including the title track, Coal Country and Shrinks and Pills. In the end, the song Hardwood Floors with its energetic fiddle and steel guitar mix is the standout. Telling the story of a romance on the dance floor, Godwin and his band really come together, making it a highlight of the record overall. I really like your singing. You have a great voice. And um, I was wondering, how how does that affect your writing? The, your, the, you know, the way you sing, does that, is that part of your writing process? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I tend to just kind of write for me. I, I've tried the whole Nashville co-write, write a song for other people. And I have a really hard time separating writing a song from singing the song. Uh-huh. And so I write a lot for my own phrasing and the way that I like to you know, the cadence of how I like things to kind of come out and the way I want words to land and where I want them to land. Mm-hmm. Um, I had this friend really open my sort of, expand my vision for how I could sing. I was singing him What Would I Do Without You right before mm-hmm. I went in to make that record. Right. I was just playing th- songs for him and kind of getting his feedback. He's a songwriter I, I respect. And I was about a verse into, or halfway, you know, halfway through a verse of What I Do Without You, and he interrupts me. He says, hold on, hold on, stop singing so loud. This is a quiet song. And he gets right here, like an inch from my face, mm-hmm. like he's going to kiss me or something. And he goes, sing it like I'm right here. And I was like, okay, I will. And he goes, no, right now. <laughs> and so I did and learned this. Whole, Please like, get away from my face. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I'd been singing it like, you know, sometimes I wake up with the sadness. Of the, and he's like, sometimes I wake up with the sadness. Ah, nice. Other days it feels like madness. And he's yeah. like, that. And Ellie's sitting there, and she started crying. She's oh, like, I've wow. never heard you sing like that. Yeah. So that's been something I've carried with me in that, you know, American beauty, and, but I'll never forget the way it made me feel. Like, you don't have to sing everything at an 8, 9, 10. Mm-hmm. Sometimes singing it like a, a 2 or a 3 is mm-hmm. way more affecting. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, it's great. 
Lighter side. This is right. the lighter side, Drew. Um, there are no wrong answers here, by the <laughs> way. What instrument do you secretly, secretly want to play? Oh, drums, for sure. Hey, that's what I said. I have, I right, have dreams yeah. of, of getting on the drum kit in a show and, and singing like Levon Helm or Don Henley. Oh, yeah. My band is like rolling their eyes like, please don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to. What was the last instrument you purchased or acquired? Uh, I got this like 1950s uh, Gibson ES-130, 125 single. Is it the little one? No, it's like a, a big round uh, arch top uh -huh. F-hole right. sunburst. Does it have a carved out part? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, so um, if you could sing a duet with anyone, who would it be? Dolly Parton. Ah, man. Have you ever walked off in the middle of a show? Ooh, I have walked off to come back. Mm -hmm. I, I got real sick one time and decided to play a show and told the uh, band, like, we're going to do the show, but y'all might have to just jam for a few minutes. Yeah. And that happened in Chicago. Yeah. And I told the audience before, and I had the flu. It wasn't good. And uh, But I've never, like, I've cut a few shows short mm -hmm. where, you know, you're just, like, getting nothing back. Mm -hmm. And you know that no yeah. one cares if you're up there or not. Right, right, so you're yeah. like, how long did the promoter say we need to play? <laughs> 60 minutes? I think 54 will do. You know? I saw Chuck Berry walk off stage. He, he, did a, he was playing in Mississippi, a double-decker music festival, and he had contracted for one hour. Uh -huh. And at 59 minutes, he goes into Johnny B. Good. Way down in Louisiana. And right at 60 minutes, he just stops, puts the guitar down, walks off stage, <laughs> and, get, and gets in his bus. <laughs> it's like... All right. But he's Chuck uh, Berry, so he can get away with it. Uh, can you sing an Elvis song? Right, right now? Yeah, I, I was going to say. Give us a little sample. We can go on together with suspicious minds. How's it going? Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be here later this afternoon. I didn't know I was running. But there are some things like rudders in the storm Someone to keep you warm A friend to raise a glass To take off your mask To tell the truth and just be you Oh yeah, alright Trying to make sense of it all Here at Americana Podcast, our goal is to explore, define, expand the Americana music genre. Do you consider yourself? Well, we are, you already said that. You yeah, do consider I yourself. I do. I do. I think it's it's a it's a great um, it's a great family to be a part of. It's a, it's a bunch of misfits who don't fit on any radio format, and but it's people who kind of I think make music on their own terms, mm -hmm. and it's a it's a great family to be a part of. I, I, there's so many artists. I'd say the 
50% of the artists I really love and listen to would, would sort of fit in that family tree. So uh, would you say that that's the aspect that you most embrace about Americana, the variety? Yeah, the variety, and, yeah. and I think the sort of independent spirit. Yeah. Anything you discard? Uh, I think we can be a little bit self-congratulatory and, mm. and snarky about mainstream. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's uh, some really great mainstream music, I think. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, what song would you consider a true Americana song? And this living or dead? It, uh, yeah. Hmm. Well, no bullshit. I think um, "Road Goes On Forever" would be one of that. <laughs> I mean, yes. Well, I mean, it's like that's a song from my college years that we would. I probably heard that song five hundred times, you know, and it's never gotten old. But well, just anything that's like, um, I think "Car Wheels on a Gravel Road." That whole record, yeah, it's would a beautiful be like the record, penultimate mm -hmm. Americana record. Yeah, all right. But we're gonna cut out that other part about. Uh, the road goes on forever. And that's going to be you no. We're going to put this as the trailer to this particular show. <laughs> <laughs> And now we're at the lightning round. Is it stuck inside of Memphis with the Mobile Blues again, or is it stuck inside of Mobile with the Memphis Blues again? Stuck inside of Mobile with the Memphis Blues again, for sure. <laughs> Dr. Pepper or Mr. Pibb? Dr. Pepper. Dry rub or sauce? Dry rub. Uh, there's a Memphis answer. Yeah. <laughs> what, are you kidding? Is there anything else but dry rub? <laughs> the movie Castaway or the movie The Firm? Ooh, The Firm. All right. Uh, Elvis in black or Elvis in white? Elvis in black. <laughs> Strat or Telly? Telly. Ah, Memphis in the meantime, or that's how I got to Memphis? That's how I got to Memphis. Yeah, beautiful song. Mudfest or Mud Wrestling? Mud Wrestling. Yeah. <laughs> With Jerry Lawler. Do you ever play Mudfest? Uh, I've never, Memphis never played Memphis in May? Yeah, I played Memphis in May. Okay, oh, yeah. but that's what I'm saying. It's like they call it, it Mudfest. It is Mudfest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I saw uh, the Allman Brothers there in mud literally up to the bottom of my knee. Yeah, I played there twice, and they weren't kidding. Yes. I mean, it rained and rained and rained and rained. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. And they went, oh, yeah, it's, uh, it's always muddy here. I said, well, I don't want to come back. So... Uh, <laughs> The three tenors or the million dollar quartet? Million dollar quartet. Yeah. Sam Phillips or Papa John Phillips? Sam Phillips. All right. Last one. You ready? Sun Studios or Moon River Festival? Moon River Festival. <laughs> <laughs> Just to let everybody know, Moon River Festival is Drew's festival over in Chattanooga. Okay, one last. Oh, no, there's two more. There's one more here. Here you go. A meet and greet or stepping on a Lego barefooted in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> stepping on a Lego barefooted <laughs> in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> La 
last one, I promise. Eric Maracana Podcast. We are working around the clock to find a new name for an instrument so beautiful that kittens swoon and puppies mule when they hear that glorious sound. We believe the current name is an affront to all things bright and beautiful. We're talking about the organ known as the B3. We need a new name, Drew. What say ye? The Greg. The Greg. <laughs> the Greg, like you know, Greg Allman. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Okay. Right. I, I'm, I'm always. This is one we do ask everybody. This is a yeah. question, and I'm always surprised how people really come up with cool, cool ideas. I'm like, I'm still stuck with the V3. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Drew Holcomb, for being our guest, and thanks for all joining us here at the Railbird Festival in Keeneland, Kentucky. You've been listening to Americana Podcast, the 51st State. I'm your host, Robert Earl Keene. Thank you. we would like to thank our host, Robert Earl Keene, the folks at Railbird Music Festival, Sue Marcus at Stunt Company, and our guest, Drew Holcomb. Americana Podcast is brought to you by Keene Productions, edited and produced by Clara Rose, mastered by Pat Mansky, with original music by Kim Warner. Until next time, let the music play. <laughs>